Namaskaram. Hi, Michael. Hi, Ernesto. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, verse 2 of Uradunarpadu. And before we start uh, uh, analyzing, talking, discussing about this verse, uh, I'm going to read it. Uh, it says, Each religion initially accepts three fundamentals. Contending, only one fundamental stands as three fundamentals. Three fundamentals are always actually three fundamentals is only so long as ego exists. I perishing, standing in the state of oneself, is best. The three fundamentals that Bhagavan talks about here, Mummudale, um, that refers to God, world, and soul. Um, or rather, soul, world, and God. Um, because first the soul rises, that is ego. Uh, then we see the world, then we infer the existence of God and we pray to God for whatever. Um, the next word is emmatamum. Emmatam means whatever matam. Matam is a, a Sanskrit word. Though it is translated here as religion, it actually has a, a broader meaning than religion. That is, mata, um, mata comes from the same root as mati. In fact, it comes from, a, they all, there are so many words that come from the verbal root man, which means to uh, think. Um, so, um, mati is gen, uh, generally means, it can mean mind in general, but it is often used in the more specific sense of the intellect. Um, so, uh, Bhagavan has said, but mati, mata comes from mati. That is, matter means any, any system of belief, um, particularly theistic system of belief. Um, I mean, in this case, a theistic system of belief or some a, a system of belief, but not only is a, um, a theoretical philosophy, but also has, uh, includes uh, practices leading towards some goal. That is generally what is meant by matta. That is how philosophy is understood in Indian, uh, in Indian philosophy. Philosophy is not just a, an intellectual exercise. Uh, obviously, the, the reasoning and the, um, and the logic and the conceptual analysis, these all have a role to play in philosophy, but philosophy is more than these. Philosophy is about is about life, about how to live our life. So um, in any, any deep philosophy also gives guidance on how we should live our life and how we should seek what lies beyond the intellect. Um, so matter is used in the sense here of, uh, you can say, a, any spiritual philosophy or any um, a, any system of um, any theistic system of belief um, but even those um, spiritual philosophies that don't particularly have a, a, a concept of God there's always some third entity there's ourself the world and something that lies beyond these whether you call it moksha or nirvana or God or Brahman or whatever it is um, but uh, in the Kalivemba version of this verse, he says, Uluhu kartun weir. Uluhu means the world, K 
Katan means uh, Badua. That's referring to God um, as the, the one who is who is directing all that is happening in this world. And uh, Weir means the life or soul. Um, so these are three fundamentals that we are that he's primarily talking about here. But as I say, any spiritual philosophy has some idea about something beyond um, the, the, the soul, that means the subject, and uh, the world, that means all objects. There's something beyond that. That is what is sometimes called God, sometimes called Nirvana, sometimes called Moksha or whatever. Um, so all, all such uh, um, spiritual philosophies all begin with uh, an idea, but there are three fundamentals. Um, so we all accept that there are three fundamentals. Only the materialists will say, oh, no, no, there's only material things. And they even try and reduce the soul or the mind to uh, matter. They try to explain the, the mind as being nothing more than the brain. But that is a very, um, a very uh, shallow uh, uh, view of things, and it's it's overlooking the importance. Uh, it's overlooking the the, the, the primary um, our primary experience is our own existence. I am our awareness of our own existence. That is our primary experience. All other things are based on that. So to believe that the world is more real than we are is. Um, it's a very it's a very narrow and shallow point of view. Um, so any deeper philosophy will accept that there's something beyond um, subject and object. The subject is the soul, object is the world. Something beyond these. What is that thing? Whether you call it God or Nirvana or whatever you choose to call it, Brahman or whatever, it, uh, it, it doesn't matter. But there is some third thing beyond these. That is what any... Any um, spiritual or religious philosophy will first accept. Um, so what Bhagavan says here is, is simply in the first sentence is simply a statement of fact. All, all such all spiritual philosophies uh, or religious philosophies initially accept three fundamentals. Um, then um, in the next sentence, he um, he talks about the arguments that these three give rise to. There are some people who contend that there's only one fundamental, and it is the one fundamental that appears in these three fundamentals. But others, dualists and pluralists, uh, claim that these three fundamentals are always actually three fundamentals. That is, the uh, uh, the soul is different, the world is different, God is different, then they are always different. Um, that's the dualist or pluralist uh, point of view. Um, so uh, the problem with any philosophy, if you have any set of beliefs and you, you express your beliefs, there will always be people who will disagree with you. That is, we all have different views, different um, different ways of of. of of seeing the world, of seeing, of, of, of interpreting our experience. So um, 
there has never been any consensus among philosophers or among religions or among any, there's never been any consensus of metaphysical beliefs. People believe ultimately what they want to believe. So um, what Bhagavan is teaching us in this text is Advaita philosophy, according to which there's only one fundamental and it, but what seem to be three fundamentals is actually just this one fundamental. So it's this one fundamental that is appearing as the three fundamentals. The one fundamental, as he said in the previous verse, Tanam Avan. He, uh, he, he is referring to the one fundamental or one original thing. Who is oneself? Uh, what, uh, that means one's own real nature. Um, so... Um, so that, that's what Bhagavan is teaching us here, but in this in Uludanapri and throughout his teaching. But the point of this verse is he is saying in this sentence, contending only one fundamental stands as three fundamentals, uh, or three fundamentals always uh, um, actually are, are always actually three fundamentals, is only so long as ego exists. What he implies by this is all philosophical arguments, all, all philosophical disputes uh, can exist only so long as ego exists. That is, only so long as we rise as ego, there is there scope for all these philosophical disputes. Why, why Bhagavan says this here? He, what he, he's saying, implying in this verse and in the next verse, he's, he's giving us a warning. That is what he's teaching us in Nuladunapadu. This is the deepest Advaita philosophy. Uh, well, it, this, this is the purest form of Advaita philosophy, and Advaita philosophy is the deepest of all philosophies. But this isn't a philosophy we are to. We, a, a true Advaitin has no problem with anyone who believes anything else. Because from the perspective of Advaita, Different beliefs are appropriate to different people at different stages of their spiritual development. So if people now want to believe that God is something other than oneself, it's always something other, but we can never become one with God, as many uh, theistic, uh, theists uh, believe, that's fine, that's appropriate for them, but that is not the ultimate truth. So anyone who is truly following uh, Advaita, that means not just following the philosophy of Advaita, but following the practice of Advaita as taught in Uludunapadu and well, as, as taught generally by Bhagavan, will have no inclination to argue with those who disagree with uh, his teachings. Uh, that, that is the vast majority of people in the world, if you tell them Bhagavan, about Bhagavan's teachings, either they'll be not be interested or they'll strongly object. No, how can you say the world is just a, a figment, that, that it's all just a dream, but the world doesn't exist independent of our perception of it? No, no, they'll, they'll argue against it. That's fine. Let them believe whatever they want to believe. Uh, it is why Bhagavan has taught us what he's taught us in this and the next verse is for our own salvation. That is, we should apply these things in practice by turning within not uh, jumping out and arguing with, with others who, who 
wish to disagree with us. If they wish to disagree with us, no problem at all. Let them disagree with us. We are we we have no problem with that at all, because all if we understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly, all this is just a dream. So if people in our dream tell us this is this uh, the state which you're calling a dream is a, is real. This is definitely the, see the world exists even when you're sleeping. The world exists even before you were born. This world exists. If people in our dream choose to argue with us, yes, fine. Namaskar. You believe whatever you want to believe. When we wake up, we will find all those people with with whom we could have argued if we wanted to argue. They're all only our own mental fabrication, as indeed is the person we take ourselves to be in dream. So we, Bhagavan's teachings are not for arguing with others. If, if people are genuinely interested in Bhagavan's teachings, we can tell them about Bhagavan's teachings. But there's no point in going and telling people about his teachings people who don't want to know about his teaching, there's no point in telling them about his teachings um, because it'll only give room to unnecessary disputes which are, which are no use to anyone. You, you cannot convince someone by, um, by, uh, by um, disputing their beliefs. People want to believe something, okay, let them... Why, why people believe whatever they want to believe? Because they, they believe it because they want to believe it. People may have, um, may have all sorts of reasons and justifications for what they believe, but ultimately everyone believes whatever they want to believe. That is why there are so many different views, even among philosophers. Philosophers are supposed to be very rational, logical. Um, they're supposed to arrive at their beliefs by rational and logical means. But if if their beliefs are only formed by, by reasoning and logic, how come uh, philosophers have such wildly different uh, beliefs? There's so many different philosophical views. All are backed up with so many, by so many arguments. Because there's something, what determines what we believe is something more than just uh, reasoning and logic. What determines what we believe is what we want to believe. And then we use reasoning and logic to justify to ourselves and to others whatever we want to believe. So engaging in philosophical disputes is it's fine for, um, for professional philosophers, for academics and such people. But it is not for spiritual aspirants. For spiritual aspirant, philosophy is for living, not for arguing. Um, so that's the main point. So all philosophical contentions, all philosophical disputes are possible only so long as we rise as ego. In sleep, when we don't rise as ego, where is there any philosophical, um, is, is there, are there any philosophical disputes? There's no room for philosophical disputes in the absence of ego, because in the absence of ego, what exists is only one, namely I am, that fundamental awareness I am. That is all that exists in the absence of ego, as we can see from our experience in sleep. So this is why he, he uh, in the last sentence of this verse, he says, I perishing. I here is referring to ego. He, um, 
ego perishing, uh, standing in the state of oneself is best. Uh, the state of oneself is tanile. Tan that can mean the state of oneself or one's own state. Um, literal literally means standing. At least what, what he means by standing in the state of oneself is being as one actually is. Just, that is not rising as ego to argue with others, but just subsiding back into the heart and remaining as we always actually are, namely as that fundamental awareness I am. That is best. And Michael, sorry, um, it's clear that the, the, the first uh, intention or aim for us no, is to go no, to yourself, yeah. no, to stay yeah. as the consciousness I am. Yeah. But in, in, uh, in the case that you are going to speak or to argue or to have a, no, a conversation, no, mm. the, the, the important is the, the purpose no, that is behind that. No? Yes. If you're going to controversial and dispute and yeah. it's not for our for the aspirants, the real yeah. aspirants, but if you have a very real purpose to to understand the teachings, to yes. no, it's not uh, it's not bad. It's is is good. Yes, but this is why Bhagavan never, of his own accord, gave teachings to anyone. If someone comes to Bhagavan and just sits in his presence, Bhagavan isn't going to just start giving them a lecture. <laughs> Bhagavan, if they keep quiet, he will keep quiet. Only if they ask Bhagavan and start asking some questions, then Bhagavan will answer, but not even always. Sometimes he will answer, sometimes he'll just keep quiet. If it is useful, he will give answers. So Bhagavan never of his own accord gave teachings to anyone. All the teachings he's given us are, uh, were in response to requests from devotees, people who were seeking to know something deeper. When they asked him questions, he gave answers. And he also, in answer to the requests of Of Shiv Kashambalai, he answered questions which became Nana. In answer to the request of Murugana, he wrote songs like uh, Anma Vidde, Upadeshundia, Uladunapadu. Some people, when Bhagavan said that he, but everything that he wrote or everything that he said, it was always in answer to the, the need of that, in answer to some external prompting. Um, some people said, oh, but Bhagavan, what about. Um, Uh, uh, nobody prompted you to, to write these. And Bhagavan said, no, no, it's not so. Just like you were prompting me to write other things, Arunachal from within was prompting me to write these. I have no, no, um, there's no rising in me to do anything of my own accord. So Bhagavan never never sought to give teachings to anyone. It's only because people came to him seeking teachings, but he answered their questions. So we, understanding that, we should understand that it's not appropriate for us to go out and seek to, um, to convince others or to convert others or to proselytize Bhagavan's teachings. We could, if people come to us and ask about his teachings and really want to know, then we can answer. If they come to us to argue, namaskaram, okay, 
You yes. believe whatever you want to believe. We don't want to get involved in arguments. And it's very important to detect, no, what is the intention, the real intention of yes. the people that can yeah, yes, yes. yeah. Some sometimes will be mis sometimes it may seem to us at first that someone is very genuine. I mean, after some time, it becomes a, apparent that they are just there to argue, to assert their own views. With such people, it's best just to keep quiet. Mm. They want to believe something different, let them believe it. It's their, it's their lookout, it's no concern of ours. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we could say, Michael, instead of con contending with someone, but contending within our mind to understand. Uh, yes, yes. Turn, I mean, with yes. ourselves, yeah, to yes. understand the three fundamentals, uh, only one fundamental stands yes. as. That is, Bhagavan gave us many philosophical arguments, arguments in the sense of reasons for believing, why we should believe this, why should we should accept this, why is it necessary for us to investigate ourselves? What is investigation? How investigation is not in self-investigation is not investigating the body or the mind or the intellect or the will. It's only investigating the fundamental awareness I am. So to, to help us to understand this, Bhagavan gave philosophical arguments. Arguments in, in this context means reasons. Bhagavan's teachings are very are very rational and are based upon a, a deep and clear analysis of our own experience or that that is it's not it's based on his own direct experience obviously but he, when he presents it to us he's not just telling us something and say you must but you should believe this he's saying he's explaining to us why it is reasonable to believe this sometimes in 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 our mind when one prior belief confronts the new belief like the Bhagavan's belief there is a there's like a real argument in our mind, no? Like yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. That that is appropriate. That is appropriate. But any argument, any reasoning, any reflection that goes on in our mind should be why we we should be a wise reasoning. We should try be trying to find out reasons for for accepting Bhagavan's teachings rather than for rejecting them. We, if we want, we can find out reasons for rejecting them, but most of those reasons are superficial. If we think deeply, try to understand why has Bhagavan taught us this? Why, why is this more reasonable than believing anything else? Um, if, we, if we think like that, then it becomes clear that though it's possible to argue against this, those, the arguments against this are very weak compared to the arguments in favor of what Bhagavan has taught us. Bhagavan has given us very strong and robust arguments for believing what, for example, how can I be this body? If this body were actually myself, I couldn't be aware of myself without being aware of this body. Because if body and, and self are one and the same thing, you, you, then you, being aware of the body is being aware of oneself. Not being aware of the body is being not, not aware of oneself. But we all know from our own experience that we are aware of ourselves most obviously in dream. Yes, in dream I'm aware I am, but I'm not at all aware of this body. This body is supposedly sleeping in bed, so we are led to believe. And, but we are experiencing ourselves as if we were some other body. 
So since we are aware of ourselves in dream, without being aware of this body, we cannot be this body. And since we're now aware of ourselves, without being aware of that dream body, that dream body cannot be ourselves. So we cannot be any body. And if we go a bit deeper, okay, though the body in dream and in waking is uh, different bodies, at least the mind seems to be the same mind. So does that mean we have a mind? No, because we are aware of ourselves in sleep, in the absence of mind, if we think about it deeply. So there, there are very, these are, if we, for anyone who is willing to think deeply about these things, the arguments Bhagavan has given us are extremely powerful arguments, arguments that cannot really be uh, uh, refuted or repudiated, you, that you can try and argue against them, but they, it, it's very hard, well, it's not possible to find any really strong argument against what Bhagavan has taught us. Um, so, uh, it, it is when we are reasoning in our mind, we should be trying to understand we, we, should, we should not be looking for reasons to disagree with Bhagavan. We should be looking for reasons to agree with him. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't consider other points of view. And sometimes it's useful to consider other people's points of view, people who may argue against Bhagavan's teaching. Why are they arguing? Understand their reasons, and then we understand the weakness in their argument, and that strengthens our conviction that what Bhagavan said is true. So it's not that we shouldn't consider our arguments, but our aim is to try to understand why Bhagavan taught us this. Because the more we clearly understand it, the stronger will be our conviction, and therefore the more inclined we will be to turn within and investigate ourselves. I think it's, it's very important to try to not uh, stay uh, very attachment with our point of view about the teachings mm. uh, when you are listening to other people, because yeah. usually, usually the other people come with this intention to look for controversial, no, and uh, it's very for me, no, in my case, no, it's very important to be very open mm. and receive all the arguments with the best um, up, uh, openness, no? Yeah, yes, yes. And yes. try to look with the Bhagavan teachings, uh, the, 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 how, how is that, no? Yes. And if it's cl more clear that what I understand, yeah, or yeah. You know, if, if, if it is not more clear, no? Yes, but yeah, yeah, the yeah. openness, to listen other people, I think, is very, very, very important. It is very important because that is, when we hear other points of view, that enables us to think more deeply about these things because if other points of view may be challenging our beliefs. It's always good for us to have our beliefs challenged because we can then think about it and and sometimes there may be something, some weakness in our beliefs, some some some. Uh, weaknesses in our reasons for believing what we believe. So when we think about it, we can, we can, we can, we can. If, if our if what we were believing till now, if it was wrong, we can reject it. If we if it is right, then we can find stronger reasons for it. So it is good. It is. I mean, reasoning about these things. This is what is called manana. 
thinking deeply about these things. This is important because if we don't have really strong conviction, if we don't have a clear understanding of why what Bhagavan teaches us is correct, we won't be going very deep in the practice. So a deep and clear understanding will encourage us to go deeper in the practice. But the understanding, it, the understanding is a means, not the end. We're not here just to understand. We're not, we haven't come here just to learn a philosophy. We have come here to find out who am I, to actually know who am I, to be aware of ourselves as we actually are. That is our aim. So all these, all this philosophy, all this um, conceptual understanding is useful to the extent to which it encourages encourages us to turn within, to put Bhagavan's teachings into practice by trying to see who am I. Sometimes, Michael, I when I I, I was reading in the past, no, about the biographies of uh, them masters no yes usually i i believe that uh, they mm, go they take the scriptures mm -hmm. and and put in the box very soon mm -hmm. no don't uh, go to profound understanding and manana about the teachings no yes. I, in this case uh, buddha teachings no but sometimes these uh, this expression that we usually do uh, we speak about the uh, don't uh, let the map of the traveler mm. behind you don't uh, take the, the the destiny no or mm. the, the the teachings must go with you to the final moment no yeah, yeah, yeah. at what point we we don't let go the teachings the study the manana uh, a little um after that the real moment no, i do not i don't know if uh, I, I i think i understand what you mean that is what is the point the, exactly because you can say no because now i have not the absolutely law for for this for myself to stay too many hours in absolutely kaivalya Okay, but at what point? At what point? At what extent you are taking the scriptures to continue the manner? Okay. That that is our. We 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 need to remember what our primary aim is. Our primary aim is turning within. In order to turn within, we need to leave behind all the words, all the conceptual understanding. Um, that if a conceptual understanding points us the direction we should go. But we have to go in that direction. When we go in that direction, we are leaving the, the conceptual understanding uh, behind. We are doing the actual investigation of who am I. Um, but, but because we have, uh, because we haven't yet, or at least until we have weakened our vasanas to a considerable extent, we will be some of the time turning within and some of the time our mind will be coming outwards, at least to a certain extent. When our mind comes outwards, it is very useful to either read or think deeply about Bhagavan's teachings because that encourages us to turn back within. So uh, but having the teachings by our side or having the teachings in our heart 
is very useful up to the final moment when finally when we turn within deeply enough and subside back into the, into the innermost depth of our heart, then everything is left behind forever. What remains is, is what is the whole point of the teaching, the essence of the teaching, what are all Bhagavan's teaching pointing at? What is real is only I am. So when we hold on to I am so firmly, but we thereby let go of everything else, the teachings will, the, the, the verbal teachings will go, but the, the aim of the teachings will remain. That is I am. Mm -hmm. And for example, we say that is the love. Mm -hmm. the, the, I don't know if in English is fervor, fervor, Carlos? Is in... Father, father. Fervor, yes. fervor, yes. yes we have a the, the real intense fervor and yes. love yes. Uh, to look very keenly, very intense, this I am consciousness. Yes. Or is necessary that uh, you can stay too many hours and add this fervor and this love to moksha? Is necessary the, the two elements, too many times stay all in Kaivalya uh, with fervor and love, or only is necessary the big love and big intense only for one moment, and maybe in the past you only stay two or three hours in this self-attentiveness? Bhagavan, um, in, in this life, uh, he, he did vichara for just one split second, and thereby he merged back in his source. Why was he able to know himself in one split second of vichara whereas we've been struggling for so many years and have not yet known ourselves, because he had been through this struggle before in previous lives. Bhagavan himself said, well, but even... Um, There's, there's an analogy or two analogies that are used uh, sometimes in Vedanta. One is called uh, uh, Makaja Nyaya and Majala Nyaya. One is the, the, the example of the, um, of the baby monkey. The baby monkey will hold tight to the mother. The, uh, the other is the example of a kitten. The kitten can't hold on to its mother, so it'll just go meow, 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 and the mother will come and pick it up in her mouth by the scruff of the neck and carry it to a safe place. So Bhagavan said at one time, those who in this lifetime have, um, have, uh, have seemingly effortlessly reached the goal in accordance with the principle, with the, with the kitten principle, are those who in previous lives were strenuously striving according to the monkey principle. That is, it is necessary for us to struggle in this path. Nobody can succeed in this path without a struggle because the natural flow of the mind is to go outwards. The natural direction in which the mind goes is outwards because as Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Aptu, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. So the very nature of the mind, of ego or mind, is to be always grasping things other than itself. In other words, it's always going outwards. That's the natural direction of the mind. 
So in order to turn the mind back within, it requires a lot of work. We have to, got, we have to persevere in this practice and thereby gradually weaken our vishaya vasanas and strengthen our satvasana. So this requires patient and persistent practice for as many years or lifetimes as it takes. We can't say, because we don't know how near or far we are from the goal. Um, not that we are ever actually away from the goal, because we are that. But uh, um, in terms of the, 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 the degree of purification that is still required, we don't know how, far, how near or far we are. All we know is that the direction in which we, have, we, are, we need to travel is inwards. So we need to keep on trying more and more to look within. As we do so, we are gradually weakening our vishaya vasanas and strengthening sat vasana. This is a process everyone has to go through. This is a process but that ego that was born as I am Bengtaraman, this that ego would have gone through this process in previous lives. Because it had gone through this process in previous lives, when that intense fear of death came, it, it, it was the, that, that soul was mature enough to turn within and merge forever back into its source. And then what then remained is that ego was finished forever. What then remained is shining through that, through the, the, the body that was previously Bengtsaraman, was the, our own real nature uh, called Bhagavan Ramana. Um, um, I think that there, there are, I, I don't know to say to many people or some people, no, that if really, really working his life to stay self-attentiveness in the moment of the death of the body mm. became nyani and anyone knows no yeah 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 it is generally said death is a very favorable moment for spiritual aspirants because why we are unwilling to turn within because of our attachment to this body and everything else so at the time of the death of the body, we are being forcibly separated from this body and from all everything else we hold dear, our, our relatives, our friends, our learning, our wealth, our, whatever we may have acquired in this life, we have to say goodbye to it all at the time of death. So because of that, because we, are, we reach a point where we anyway have to give up all these things, that is a very favorable moment to turn within and merge back in our source. But it, only those who have been sincerely following this practice, trying to go deeper and deeper within, uh, throughout their life, well, I mean, who've been, who've been really trying to do this, will have that inclination to turn within at the last minute. Otherwise, if we haven't weakened our Bishaya Vasana sufficiently, when, the, when, that, when we, death is approaching, our mind will just be going outwards. Yes. But it, 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 this gives us a, a very different and very uh, positive perspective of death. Yes, yes, yes. And if you, you change this focus, no? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, I don't know if in this life, I, I will let go this ego before death, yeah, yeah. but yeah, I yeah. try to prepare for this moment. 
And yeah. when this moment comes, if, is it not an accident or very repentant? No, because yeah. if, if our pravda is that, yeah, you don't have moment to try to focus in that. Yeah, no? yeah, yeah. yeah. That is usually death is cheating us. Death comes, but it's only a false death because it's just death of the body. So we are time. We have been cheated by death so many times. It has come to us, but it has just led to another birth. So such death we don't want. We want the eternal death, the final death, the death of ego. That is the only death that will not cheat us. All other forms of death cheat us because we come back again and again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Sleep is a type of death. Mm-hmm. That is the, the mind. The mind dies in sleep, but only a temporary death because it comes back again. So mm-hmm. we want the permanent death. The permanent death is the death of ego itself. Uh, would you say, Michael, that uh, uh, talking about uh, foundations of uh, belief systems and so on, uh, because well, uh, we consider that maybe in Christianity or. Buddhism or so maybe they originally they had the same message, you know, the original message or something. Yeah. Did you say that or where other religions have gone astray, so to speak, from the original messages because they failed to to point out what ego is because it's so fundamental in Bhagavad yeah. Um yes. Well let's not blame the religions. We have gone astray, <laughs> failing <laughs> to understand it. Because the Yes, religions do in a way, they, they show us a way, but often the way is not, is not, that is, religion generally is showing us the way to intermediate goals, not to the ultimate goal. In fact, many religions, they strongly deny the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is death of ego. And they say, no, no, the soul is eternal. The soul was created by God and it will remain forever. Or, and I don't want to die. I want to be there ever to be singing Krishna's praises or whatever. So the, the, the religions teach so many intermediate goals because that is what appeals to the minds of many of different people. Some people, this idea of, uh, of uh, annihilation of ego, it's a totally unappealing idea. No, no, I want to be in Vaikuntha singing or I want to be in... Um, uh, Gokula uh, singing the praises of Krishna or whatever. I mean, whatever be the name or form of God they're attracted to, they 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 think being with their God that is the ultimate goal. What higher goal is there than to be with God? Um, so they don't want to lose themselves in God. They even say, um, they even say, I don't want to become sugar. I want to I want to enjoy sugar. Mm-hmm. Bhagavan had a nice argument in answer to that. He said. Is Satchidananda jada like sugar? Sugar cannot enjoy its own sweetness. But Brahman, Satchidananda, is, is not only ananda, it is also chit. So it is always enjoying its own ananda. So, um, but these different beliefs are there because they're suited to different people. So, but what the, the goal that we are taught by Advaita, and most clearly by Bhagavan, is the annihilation of ego, the death of ego. When ego dies, everything comes to an end. And what remains? 
the one thing that is that has never started and therefore can never end, namely our own real nature, Brahman or whatever you want to call it. But in other in other uh, Advaita teachings, for example, when they say that, uh, well, they, uh, they believe in Shristi Drishtivada, no? That uh, this world was created by yes, whatever something. But in the end, where I am, also. So it's like yes. uh, in in that in that sense, it's like uh, uh, let's say how to put it is that. Um, I mean, after realization or whatever they, they call it, it's you remain being the body, being I am, but the creation is still there, uh, created by Ishwara. And yes, yes. there's still yes. suffering, there's still, uh, if this world is here still, how can it be no suffering? How can it be you know, no destruction or sorrow and some things like that? Yeah, yeah. That That is... Even Advaita, there are different, it is explained in different ways, because if the, the Bhagavan has given us the deepest explanation of Advaita, but that will not appeal to many people. So often Advaita is presented in a more diluted fashion, but gives a seeming, at least a partial reality to the world and to our life in this world. Yes, it's not the ultimate truth, but it is the Vibhaharika Satya. So, okay, okay. So it is a type of Satya. That's good. We're happy. But the, um, that only, only Advaita will appeal to some people only to that extent. But the real Advaita is the Advaita as taught by Bhagavan. That uh, uh, Bhagavan also sometimes um, used to present things in a more diluted way according to the needs of people. But if we go to the heart of his teachings, to his own original writings, works like Uludunapdu, then we can understand Advaita in its purest and most undiluted form, most radical form. Mm. That may appeal to us, it won't appeal to others. So there, there's a reason why. There are so many different religions, so many different philosophies. Even in Advaita, there are different ways of understanding it. It is all to suit the needs of different minds. But if our aim is the annihilation of ego, we must be willing to give up everything. And if that is truly our aim, then we will be willing to accept the, the pure and radical Advaita as taught by Bhagavan. Yeah, because how in the in the past, no, in the different um, rishis, when they give a diluted uh, version of the radical version, because they looking for the aspirant, try to understand a little by little by little, yeah, yeah. maybe some stages of comprehension, mm -hmm. uh, finally appears in the right, no, in the, in yeah, the scriptures. Yeah, yeah. And the people say, no, Gaudapada said that, no, or the Kati Upanishad said that, no, or the Mandukya yeah, yeah. said that, no. Yeah. And is a moment in the history, no, when this mm -hmm. Rishi give uh, uh, the level four, for example, no, 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 we came to the level one, no, of the radical, no, yeah. is in, in this moment, no. Yeah, that is a, a clear example of this is the Upanishads. 
the Upanishads, which are the foundation of uh, Vedanta, they there is room to interpret them in so many different ways. This is why there are so many different forms of Vedanta. It is appropriate, but they, 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 the Upanishads have catered for different needs. Not everyone will be um, will be attracted to the deepest Advaita. So it's also possible to interpret the Upanishads to support um, more dilutive forms of Advaita or Vishista Advaita or Dvaita or Vedra Veda Vedanta, different, so many different ways of interpreting it. There's room in the Upanishads for them to be interpreted like that. That is the way it should be, because not everyone is ready to come to the deepest yet. Another good example is the Bhagavad Gita. The first chapter in which Krishna is giving teachings is chapter two. There he gives the very deepest Advaita teachings. But then in subsequent chapters, he talks about so many other things about karma, about yoga, about this and about that. Why does he talk about so many other things after first talking about the highest? Because Arjuna wasn't yet ready to, gra to grasp fully the, the the import of what was said in the second chapter. So he has so many other questions, and so other chapters uh, were necessary. So Krishna started with the highest teachings. Like that, Bhagavan always was, was, when people came and asked him questions, he first pointed them at the, at the ultimate truth. That is, who is asking this question? Rather than being concerned about what is the answer to this question, first find out who is the one who is asking the question. Bhagavan is trying to push us deep, turning us, our attention back within. But why do all questions arise? They all arise to ego. So the only way to put an end to all questions and all doubts is to put an end to a doubter. So turning within is the only solution. So Bhagavan try at first Bhagavan would try and push people in that direction. Those who were receptive, they thought, ah, yes, this is the right thing what Bhagavan is saying. There's no point in asking all these questions when I don't even know who I am. So they such more mature souls. They will grasp what Bhagavan is saying and turn within. But many were not able to grasp that. And they would say, oh, Bhagavan, don't use your, your Brahmastra. Your, that Brahmastra is his, <laughs> constantly telling people to find out who, is, who it is who is asking all the questions or who has all these problems. So, Bhagavan, I've got a question to ask you, but I'll ask it only if you promise not to use your Brahmastra. Bhagavan say, okay, okay, ask. But invariably, Bhagavan will use his Brahmastra again. His very nature is that. Yes. And, and uh, come to me in an analogy with that, no? For example, if I want to go from Madrid to London, no? Yes. Um, I don't know that the destiny is London. Yes. But I want to go to the truth, to the truth no? Yeah. And I ask you, Michael, uh, what is the real, real and radical and ultimate truth? Truth, yes. And you say, no, is a parish, no? Mm. Yes. Uh, if you don't tell me that is London the yes. ultimate truth, I became to believe that Paris is the final destiny. Yes. And I stay there trying to defend that is this the ultimate truth and, and try to yes. believe that is the ultimate truth. And after you say, no, no. Ten kilometers more to London, no? This, this <laughs> yeah. stage, no? 
For yeah. for this, I think that is the best, no? The, what yeah, Bhagavan yeah. said. Bhagavan himself said, it's always best to give the, give the highest, the truest first. Then if people are not ready to accept it, you can come down to their level. But if you start by giving the more diluted truth, sooner or later you're going to have to tell them, no, this isn't the final. There's something more than that. So first point them at the ultimate. Then if they're not willing to accept that, then you can come down to their level. Hmm. Yes. That, um, was the, that was the, the natural teaching mode of Bhagavan. It is also, if we read the Gita properly, we can see that is the natural mo teaching mode of Krishna. The first Krishna said, why do you worry about all these people you're going to kill? They've already been killed by me. That is, uh, they, when their time comes, they're going to die. So death is certain for everyone. But death is just like leaving a shirt. Whatever is born is going to die. If you change your shirt, it's no big deal. Changing the, bo the body dying and the new body will come. It's, it's, it's no big deal. But there's something beyond, something that, that, that never dies, nor um, no, but, but, but is never born and never dies. That is the reality. Yes. And uh, do you remember, Michael, that in the last meeting we was speaking, uh, you were speaking no, about it, mm. This question that uh, some people, some person ask you about Nisargadatta and the confusion between. Yes. Uh, I, I try to. Um, I think that Nisargadatta, when he said, um, I am the. Uh, in Spanish, is Eseidat, is thatness, no? I think that's in, in, in English now. He referred, he really referred to Chidabasa. He's not referring to the the real consciousness I am without maybe jara. maybe but it shows uh, it shows a superficial understanding because that is Bhagavan made a very important distinction between I am and I am this body yes. ego is the is the same awareness I am but mixed with adjuncts what is real is only I am The adjuncts are unreal. But if you use the term I am to refer to ego, that is an inappropriate use of that. Because what does I am mean? I am means I exist. I am is referring to our existence. Our existence is real. What we take ourselves to be is unreal. Yes. The fact that I am is real. But, the fact when, that I am Michael is that is the falsity. Absolutely, uh, when, when he said para Brahman, he's mm. or, or the absolute, he's referring to this stay in the consciousness I am without the adjuncts. Yes, but the very fact that the way he uses the language, yes, suggests that he doesn't really have a very deep understanding. Because that is one of the most important aspects of Bhagavan's teaching is this distinction between I am and I am this body. Yes. It's the same I am, but I am on its own, that is the pure awareness. I am this body, that is the adjunct mixed awareness. That is the root of all problems. If we remove the, that adjunct mixed awareness, the pure awareness alone remains. So... The, the term, the, these are not just arbitrary terms. 
you, you can't change the meaning of I am. I am has its own clear meaning. I am means I exist. So if you deny the existence of I am, you're denying your own existence. Mm -hmm. So what Bhagavan, so that's why Bhagavan made this very important distinction between I am and I am this body. That's the way so Bhagavan is, is far more logical, reasonable, and most of all, most important of all, it is more practical. Because if you if you say I am is unreal, then what are we to hold on to? I am is the only element of our experience that is real. Uh, the, the, the way it is presented by Nisargadatta is con is conducive to confusion. No, I think it is. It is. And but, but if uh, I mean I I'm not here to judge Nisargadatta's state, but <laughs> based on his teachings. I would say, if he had a clear understanding, he would have taught more clearly. Yeah. When when someone talks in a explains things in a confused way, that shows there's a confused understanding. There's a lack of clarity, a lack of discrimination there. Yes, and when he say, for example, oh, "Don't worry, I can smoke, and I can eat um, meat, and all of that," no. Uh, because I'm not this body now, I'm the absolute. There two if, things. He, if he is not the body, then he's not smoking, then he's not eating meat. To yeah. say I can eat meat means he's taking himself to be the body. Yeah. There's a contradiction there. Yes, yes. And, uh, and but I'm saying this not, not to. And it's not a good, a good example for the people that is in the stages very intermediate. No? Yes, 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 yes. So um, the, the, these people with a superficial understanding of Bhagavan's teachings jump to the conclusion that what Nisargadatta say, is saying is the same as Bhagavan. That shows how poor their understanding of Bhagavan's teachings actually was. Because if they had a clear understanding of Bhagavan's teachings, they would clearly see the difference between what Bhagavan is teaching and what Nisargadatta is teaching. Yeah. No, but not those who had a clear understanding of Bhagavan's teachings wouldn't go to Nisargadatta. No. Those who went to Nisargadatta, because they didn't have a clear understanding of Bhagavan's teachings, they didn't challenge him. He, they were always letting him challenge them, but nobody challenged him. <laughs> How can I am be unreal? How can there be anything beyond I am? If it's beyond I am, then we can't go there because how can we go beyond I am? We cannot go beyond our own existence. So the whole thing is, it's all very, the thing is, Advaita has been in various forms, has been there in India for thousands of years. But there's so many different, people have so many different understandings of Advaita. As far as I'm aware, the, the sampradaya to which Nisargadatta belonged was not even a particularly uh, Advaitic sampradaya. They may have mixed in some Advaita teachings, but they had a, they had their own um, their own beliefs and everything. So it it is not the same as Bhagavan. Only 
only a person with the most superficial understanding of Bhagavan's teachings will think that Nisag- what Nisargadatta is saying is the same as Bhagavan. Hmm. That's the way also uh, uh, Uladun Arpadu starts in the first Mangalam verse, no? If what exists, we're not, yeah? Yes, 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 yes. And what that, exists, it's only I am. Bhagavan says... There is n- nothing else. I mean, there can yeah. be... See what Bhagavan says in verse 23 of Upadesha India. Because of the non-existence of any awareness other than what exists, to know what exists, what exists is awareness. Awareness exists as we. So Bhagavan is affirming that we are what actually exists. Yeah, that's like the proof that, yeah, we we exist. uh, Bhagavan's teachings are so... Simple, so clear, so logical. Whereas Nisargadatta is full of confusion. And uh, I think also uh, one thing that Nisargadatta or the other one, the other day you were talking about Papaji in our meeting, or mm. uh, they don't uh, think. Well, I read uh, Nisargadatta like like you, not not in depth, but uh, as far as I'm aware of it, and he doesn't mention anything like vasanas uh, or something that. So basic, or so yes, 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 yes. It's, it's so important, so so uh, central in the yeah, teaching. Yeah. Because our attention is going outwards. That yeah, yeah. It's just like the practice is going there, but without taking yeah. into account yeah. what vasanas are or Bhagavan, Bhagavan's teachings are so practical. Whereas the I, as far as I'm aware, nobody has expressed Advaita in such a deep simple, radical, and practical way as Bhagavan. And complete, no? Because mm, and complete, yes. Complete, because uh, say, okay, you want to go with the japa, no? Uh, the mm. sadhana, because mm. you need, because you don't want to attend yourself or you think that you yeah, can't, yeah. no? Yeah. Perfect, no? Yeah. Complete. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, so in... in uh, would you say, Michael, that the two, uh, talking about foundations or if Bhagavan's teachings uh, had foundations at all, would you say that they are two focuses are ego and its uh, vasanas, ego and vasanas, understanding what is ego and what its vasanas are and how they function? Yeah, I, I mean, understanding the nature of ego is yeah. important. That is, but, but Bhagavan has summarized the nature of ego in verse 25 of Uludunapadu. There he's given all that we need to know about the nature of ego. Of course, it, we to understand that verse, we need the other verses of Uludunapadu, but the essence of all of Bhagavan's teachings is contained in that verse 25 of Uludunapadu. Because what is he saying there? Grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. What do we have to infer from that? The very nature of ego is to grasp form. So where do the Vishaya Vasanas come in? Because since the ego's nature is to grasp form, its inclination to grasp form are what are called Vishaya Vasanas. So they are the obstacle. Since the the nature of ego is to grasp form, so long as we continue grasping form, we are Perpetuate, we are nourishing and perpetuating ego. What does it mean by grasping form? Form means anything other than ourselves, anything that can be distinguished from any other thing. 
that every thought, every feeling, every belief, every like, every dislike, every desire, these are all forms. And of course, all the world is, all the objects of the world are forms, and all the events of the world are forms. Anything that is distinguishable from anything else is what is meant there by form. So, in other words, anything other than ourselves. So, the nature of ego is to be always grasping things other than itself. But if instead of trying, ego itself is a formless phantom, it's got no form of its own. So, if it tries to grasp itself, it will subside and disappear. So, Bhagavan, in that one verse, has revealed the essence of the whole of Vedanta. Because that is, why, why is Vedanta necessary? What Vedanta teaches us is there's one only without a second. Fine, then no problem. One only without a second. Why, why is Vedanta necessary? Because there seems to be more than one only. Why does there seem to be more than one only? In order to find out the answer to that, we first need to consider to whom does there seem to be more than one more, more than one? Right? To whom do all this, does all this multiplicity appear? Only to ego. So ego is the root problem. And ego is a false awareness of ourselves. So ego is a vidya, ego is maya, because instead of being aware of ourselves as just I am, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. That is a vidya, that is agnana, that is maya. So how to get rid of that? We need to. Uh, uh, we cannot get rid of of samsara. We cannot get rid of maya. We cannot get rid of vidya without getting rid of the one to whom all these uh, seems to exist. To whom all these seem to exist. That is ego. So Bhagavan is going to the very, very heart of it, the very root of the problem. So if we understand that the root of the problem is ego. And the nature of ego is to always grasp things other than itself, but to subside and dissolve back into its source by grasping itself. Therefore, what is the, what, what is the way to liberation? Only by only self-investigation, only turning the mind within and trying to hold on to that fundamental awareness I am, which alone is what is real. So when we, when we, if we really understand Bhagavan's teachings, all these other, all these other things that people say, oh, this is the same as Bhagavan, this is the same as Bhagavan, it is clear that they are not the same as Bhagavan. Bhagavan is far, far deeper, far, far more radical, and far, far more practical. That's the most important thing of all. Because what is the purpose of, what is the use of Vedanta? If, it, if, it, if Vedanta isn't practical, then it's of no practical value whatsoever. Vedanta, if we understand it correctly, it is extremely practical. But the practice, the, the practical implications of Vedanta have nowhere been made so clear as in Bhagavan's teachings. You, men you mentioned before, Michael, uh, the word belief. Yeah. Uh, uh, one thing about belief, like, because uh, when we have the belief, like, the world is a dream, no? Yeah. Uh, it's like a, a dream, no? That they call, I think it, they call it, like, empirical reality or something in yeah. other Advaita. So we have this belief, no? That Bhagavan teaches us. Yeah. So this, be it's, this belief 
the belief that the world is not a dream is not that we are it's experiential it's i mean it's not that we are saying oh this world is real every time that yeah, yeah. every day you know like yeah so it, the the belief that the world is not a dream is intrinsically to ego to ego and the nature of ego yes yes, yes yes because i mean we have we we have to live up to it to the world the, the belief that the world is a dream to a certain extent the i mean the practicing and going inwards and so on yeah. uh, live up to it the most i mean uh, as much as i can but the belief won't be eradicated totally until ego is uh It is the nature of ego to experience the body as I. What is real is I. So if the body is I, the body seems to be real. So in the view of ego, the body will always seem to be real. And since the body is just a small, seem to be just a small part of this vast universe, the whole universe will be, seem to be real. So ego can never, can never, It will always seem to ego, but what it is currently experiencing, the body and world it is currently experiencing, will always seem to be real. That's why, so long as we're dreaming, whatever we experience in the dream seems to be real. Why? Because we seem to be a dream body. So that dream body seems to be real. Therefore, the whole dream world seems to be real. But as soon as we leave that dream and come to this dream, our identification with that dream body is severed and so instantly we recognize oh it was just a dream and the same goes for karma i mean it's uh it's very hard to live uh uh to uh, to have it as a belief yeah, that everything is predestined and we should accept it as it is and so on no but then it's hard to live up to it at a hundred percent yes so we'll be doing agamia and interfering with the yeah. Nation, yeah. If we have really understood the law of karma as taught by Bhagavan, we will not allow our mind to go outwards. The fact that we're allowing our mind to go outwards means we still haven't been, we're still not fully convinced, but Prarabdha will take care of everything because what is destined to happen is going to happen. What is not destined to happen is not going to happen. So though we are free to, to, to like it or to dislike it, to try to change it or not to try. We have that freedom, but we cannot change it. So why should we take any interest in anything other than ourselves? Because we can't change anything by taking interest in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so these two beliefs help us to, to reduce the extent to which yes, we yes. consider things. That, that is all that Bhagavan taught us is all has one purpose and one purpose alone. To, to, uh, to motivate us or to direct us to turn within. So all of Bhagavan's teachings have practical implication. What he taught about the law of karma, what he taught about this world being a dream, they all have practical implications. But we need to apply that practice. That is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, merely understanding all these things, it's very nice to understand Bhagavan's teaching, but it's not sufficient. We, we haven't truly understood Bhagavan's teachings unless... And the sign that we've truly understood Bhagavan's teaching is when we turn within. When our mind keeps on jumping outwards, that means our understanding is still imperfect. It hasn't really sunk in the truth of what Bhagavan is saying. 
may have sunk in to a certain extent, but it's still at this relatively superficial level of the mind. It needs to sink into the very bottom of our heart. And it, it will sink into the very bottom of our heart only when we sink into the bottom of our heart by turning within. So the deeper we go within, the deeper will be our conviction in the truth of Bhagavan's teachings. And the deeper our conviction, the deeper we'll go within. 